from books to movies to social media, from getaway vacations to fantasy football and virtual reality, we live in this world with a tension, a tension between the way we would like things to be and the way things in this life actually are. The book of Ecclesiastes brings us face to face with reality, with the way life often is. It makes declarations and asks many questions, but ultimately points us to the one place all of the answers can be found. This book is a lot like life in that despite what it feels like, as we walk through it, it can only truly be understood in light of the end. In fact, David Gibson described the message of Ecclesiastes as teaching us to live life backwards. Now, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for us to preach through Ecclesiastes backwards, but I do believe in order to rightly understand this glorious book, We need to think through the observations that are made here in light of the author's conclusion at the end. From the opening declaration through the sometimes unsettling details, the message of Ecclesiastes is moving toward its final conclusion. Namely this. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Thus ends the book of Ecclesiastes. But this morning, we need to start at the beginning. Our passage is Ecclesiastes 1, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of Almighty God. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, I have two main goals for us this morning. Taken together, they're rather ambitious. One, to tackle the key issues we need to discuss in order to understand this book clearly. And two, through this process, see the glory of Jesus revealed. And in so doing, also prepare our hearts to receive communion together. So then, let's begin by asking a fair question 
Why study Ecclesiastes? Now, there are a number of valid reasons, but let's begin with what I said last week as we concluded Matthew with the Great Commission. If you were on the women's retreat and didn't get to hear that, we make those messages available, available every single week. You can go to our website or they're on iTunes. You can just download it and listen to it so you can get the capstone message. One of the ways we seek to make disciples as a church is through teaching all that Jesus has commanded. That's language straight out of the Great Commission. We do this by preaching through the Bible expositionally. So, Lord willing, we will preach through each book and every passage eventually. <laughs> Little Jaslyn asked me this morning, when you get done preaching through the Bible, do you just start over? And I said, well, in 20 years or so, when we get there, that may be what we'll do. She said, it's not going to take that long. And I said, oh, honey, <laughs> very well may. <laughs> Think of the passage that uh, David read for us this morning. Why study Ecclesiastes? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And this, of course, therefore, applies to Ecclesiastes. The depth of insight, the stark observations, and the, the, the agonizing wrestlings serve as a corrective to the quick fix and the upbeat theological tendencies of the modern church. Even at River Oaks, we can fall in love with sound bites and bullet points. But the fact is that all truth is not tweetable. Ecclesiastes provides hope for the person who looks around at everything that they see in the world and is prompted to ask hard questions about God because of the pain he sees and because of the pain he feels. Ecclesiastes will challenge those of us who try to figure everything out, who diligently plan, and then attempt to control the details of our lives to, to engineer the outcome that we think is best. But like the great, great theologian Mike Tyson once said, planning and preparation is great until you get punched in the face. And that's a direct quote from Dr. Tyson. <laughs> Another reason to study Ecclesiastes is that it is an example of the genre called wisdom literature. It's like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. We try to preach through and read through different portions of Scripture over time, both from the Old Testament and from the New 
Today, as you heard already, we began reading through the epistle to the Romans in the New Testament. And of course, we're now preaching through Ecclesiastes in the Old. Both revelation from God about God. But it doesn't take a genius or a biblical scholar to realize these two books are very, very different. Teaching different genres helps mature our thinking because it gives us a different perspective on familiar truths. Now, I've had the opportunity to drive a car in two foreign countries, Guatemala and Kenya. Hey. Both of these were interesting experiences. Now, I've driven in Chicago, so that in and of itself is, is an interesting experience. But in Guatemala, the streets were narrow, the hills were steep, all of the transmissions were manual, and there were people everywhere. It was a little more chaotic, but essentially the same as, as driving here. Very cool experience. In Kenya, uh, when we were at, uh, I think it was one of the national parks, Bishop Julius's son, Gibran, asked me if I wanted to drive his car. And I said, sure, sounds fun. So I drove from one of the stopping points within the, the national park to the main office. In this case, we were on a dirt road that was wide open. But everything about his car was the same as the state's. Steering wheel was on the same side, all of that kind of thing. What was fascinating to me was how disorienting this experience was for one reason. Everything's the same, except they drive on the left side of the street. Doesn't sound complicated, right? But even in the middle of nowhere, on a wide dirt road, when I saw a car approaching, it was so disorienting that I basically came to a complete stop. And Gibran would just start laughing because I didn't trust what I was seeing or my reaction to go in the correct direction. Same type of car, same general rules, same direction, but the difference in perspective from the left side of the street was so different, it was disorienting, and it, and it took me a while to adjust. Now, reading wisdom literature can be very similar. Same Bible, same truths, same general theological direction, but the perspective is sometimes noticeably different. And it may take us a little while to adjust. But be confident of this. Ecclesiastes will reveal the glory of Jesus. We may arrive at our cross-centered destination, however, on the other side of Truth Street. Now, 
we need to make several important interpretive decisions as we walk through this book together. Our key interpretive decisions begin with authorship. Now, there's not a definitive consensus on this question, as if there ever is, especially given modern scholarship. But historically, authorship has been ascribed to Solomon, and I am confident that this is correct. Some believe Solomon wrote Song of Solomon as a young man, Proverbs in middle age, and Ecclesiastes later in life. And it certainly fits well with the themes and the perspective of those books. Ecclesiastes feels like sage wisdom from a man who has seen a lot of things, who has experienced a lot of things, and who has thought about a lot of things. So this wisdom is 3,000 years old if Solomon is the author. So if you're a person who feels like you're constantly battling competing emotions, or if you're a person who thinks carefully about the world, but frankly, it makes you just want to cry, or if you have experienced or are experiencing a level of, of suffering or agony that, that sometimes leaves you spiritually confused, Solomon's words may shake you. But they also have the power to shape you into a person who is more able to fully trust in the one true God. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking the case for Solomon as the author because I think it has significant implications for the weight of the message of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1 and verse 1 in Ecclesiastes says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. In verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, the author writes, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Later in chapter 1 and verse 16, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. Now, there were only two kings before him, but there are many, many, many people who led Israel before Saul and his father David. In chapter 2 and verse 9, after describing incredible excesses in wealth and women and work, the author says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. What a statement. Ecclesiastes 8.2, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, this could be someone else, but it certainly fits Solomon. 
There are multiple references to the king in chapter 10. And then finally in 12, verses 9 through 10, we read, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Again. It fits. So there are multiple specific references within Ecclesiastes that fit well with Solomon's life and his subsequent authorship. Recall that in 1 Kings 3, the Lord appears to Solomon in a dream and tells Solomon to ask him for something. The implication is, ask me for anything. And Solomon famously asks for wisdom, which pleases the Lord. The Lord specifically said to him, Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. 1 Kings 3.12. Again, what an extraordinary statement from the lips of our God. Later, the queen of Sheba, who may have been a queen in, in Ethiopia, or a country near there, who herself was extraordinarily wealthy. The list of the gifts that she brought with her to give to Solomon just makes your jaw drop on the floor. But she wanted to see for herself the rumors she had heard of Solomon's wealth and of his wisdom. 1 Kings 10 says, When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants and their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered of the Lord, she was, the text says, breathless. Solomon's wealth and wisdom took this extraordinary woman's breath away. She said that the reality was greater than the rumors. So biographically speaking, Ecclesiastes fits Solomon like a well-tailored suit. How wise, think of the implication of this, how wise of God to have the wisest, richest, and in some ways the most prolific man who ever lived, according to God's own testimony, to have that man write this book. How powerful do his words resonate with us then when he argues essentially, yet, what was the point? It did not bring ultimate satisfaction or even sustainable joy. Wow. Look, if if you're a a hard-driving, locked-in, easily bored, next-thrill-up, type A type, Solomon's words will resonate with you. They may rattle you, but his words are also have the power 
to redirect your passions directly on to God. Now, the next important interpretive decision relates to the structure of the book. We need to decide, what are we actually reading? Is it a variety of Jewish proverbs just pulled together into one document? Is it primarily a treatise on secular philosophy? Men have argued for each of the positions that I'm listing. Is it a comparison with two separate voices describing the the meaninglessness of nihilism versus the purposefulness of theism? In other words, should the negative perspectives in the book be thought of like the dialogue of Job's friends, for example, over and against the clear-headed faith of Job? Or in this case, the preacher's convictional faith in God? One man compared reading Ecclesiastes to attempting to control an octopus. The image speaks for itself, right? As soon as you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, as soon as you think you've understood this book, there is yet one tentacle waving in the air, taunting you, saying, what about me? But, I think, Ecclesiastes is not as confusing as it may initially seem. It is made up of several observations about various aspects of life, but all of the observations serve a very cohesive purpose which describe the difficulty of of fully grasping everything that is happening in the world. This guy is not a pessimist. He's not a fatalist. He is a hardcore realist with a firm, God-centered orientation. The Hebrew word kohelet, or in Greek, Ecclesiastes, is the word translated preacher. It literally means one who speaks to an assembly. Therefore, both based on structure and because of this title, I think Ecclesiastes is essentially a singular message perhaps addressed even to a specific gathering of people, much like a sermon. Ecclesiastes is basically constructed with a powerful opening declaration. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You can almost hear him anecdotally adding, do I have your attention? Let me continue. Ecclesiastes is constructed with a, with a very powerful, attention-grabbing, opening proclamation. It's constructed with a premise that is applied to multiple observations. It's probed with provocative questions. And it all drives to a very concise conclusion. Much like a sermon. If this is true then, how might we summarize the essence of Ecclesiastes? 
Which brings us to our final important interpretive decision. What is the message of the book? Now that is a complicated question. But we'll unpack it over the next 18 weeks. But I want to offer a clear answer up front right now. So our, our time in Ecclesiastes feels a little bit more like, like a guided tour and not just aimless wandering for us. One man described Ecclesiastes as a commentary on life outside the garden. There's plenty of stuff going on outside of Eden, right? I think the message of Ecclesiastes And I have thought long and I have thought hard about how to summarize this. I think it can be summarized like this. Life can be extremely frustrating because it can't be fully comprehended or controlled. But God has designed this world so that our pleasure and our pain, our excitement, and our exasperation. The things that cause us to marvel, and even life's monotony, all direct us to find our ultimate fulfillment in Him. Life can be extremely frustrating because it can't be fully comprehended or controlled. Have you ever felt that frustration? But God has designed this world so that our pleasure and our pain, our excitement and our exasperation, the things that cause us to marvel and even life's monotony, they all direct us to find our ultimate fulfillment, our complete satisfaction in God himself. The key to understanding the message rests primarily on our interpretation of the main phrase or phrases of the book. Okay? So that's what I think Ecclesiastes means. It's behind me. But I don't want you to think that just because I said so. I mean, hopefully I have a mild level of credibility with you at this point. But I want you to see it too. This is how I get there. Right? There's no mystery. The word, the Hebrew word hevel is used 38 times in Ecclesiastes. H-E-B-E-L in Hebrew. Or at least transliterated in English. Most literally, hevel means breath, mist, vapor, or a wisp of air. But hevel is a word that is very context-dependent. Okay, You know what I mean by that? Depending on the context, it can mean vain, futile, meaningless, irrational, senseless, temporary, fleeting, mysterious, incomprehensible, ungraspable, enigmatic. Now, if you take those possible definitions and think through my description, my summary, you can see that I tend more towards the mysterious, 
incomprehensible, ungraspable, enigmatic end of the spectrum. All of the contextual meanings that I listed, those definitions, find nuances in Ecclesiastes, which we will see as we walk through the book. However, I believe that the all-encompassing nature of the key phrase most naturally fits the idea of life under the sun not being fully graspable or controllable in terms of meaning. All is hevel. Everything is hevel. Life can sometimes be frustratingly incomprehensible as we seek to make sense of what God is doing. This case, that this is the best way to understand this word and this phrase, is bolstered when we apply the second key phrase used an additional seven times in Ecclesiastes. That phrase is striving after the wind. So look at chapter 1 and verse 14 with me. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is heaven, a striving after the wind. Now, this second phrase is fascinating. And I think in many ways, it provides the key to the right interpretation of heaven, and therefore of the whole book. The phrase, a striving after the wind, essentially means an attempt to, to corral or grasp or control or direct the wind. Its root word means shepherd. So perhaps most literally, it's saying life is like trying to shepherd the wind. Or to, I mean picture a shepherd corral or direct the wind. Picture a shepherd trying to guide his sheep across the road or into a pasture or a pen of some type. We're in awe of skilled shepherds and it's hard not to laugh when you see an unskilled shepherd because sheep are tough to control. What about the wind? Even Jesus said, look, the wind blows wherever it wants. Of course, I'm sovereign so I can control it. But for you all, for you all, impossible, right? There are multiple places where interpretations like meaningless... So say you wanted to say, I, I think heaven means meaningless more than it means ungraspable or unable to be comprehended or controlled. Well, in some cases, that nuance will fit well with what the writer's saying. But interpretations like meaningless don't work when you consider the everything or all nature that he's arguing because he compares at points one thing is better than another, which by definition means they can't all be meaningless, right? 
There are other times when he describes how long and repetitious life can seem, which is anything but fleeting, right? So some of the other words fit very nicely in certain contexts, but not in other contexts. But we'll talk about those examples when we get there in the book. But the meaning that pulls everything together, that seems to fit most consistently throughout, is the idea of life not being able to be fully grasped or understood. Like trying to reach out and grab smoke that's arising from a candle. Right? How futile is that exercise? Or trying to corral or shepherd or guide the wind. We can't quite figure out what God is doing in this world, and sometimes not even in our own lives specifically. There is no formula we can calculate in order for all of life to make perfect sense in this side of glory, or to use the words of the preacher as we observe life under the sun. But this is the way God wants it, because it drives us to him. Life can be, think of this summary now, in light of what I'm saying. Life can be extremely frustrating because it can't be fully corralled. You see the imagery? That is comprehended or controlled. But God has designed this world so that our pleasure and our pain, our excitement and our exasperation, the things that cause us to marvel and even life's monotony all direct us to find our ultimate fulfillment in him. In him, that which is fleeting prepares us for everlasting fulfillment. In him, peace is possible even in the experience of immense pain. In him, earthly pleasures become appetizers of everlasting joy. In him, the insignificant becomes sacred. In him, unrelenting repetition ends in unmerited reward. The frustrating reality of not being able to fully corral the essence of life or to completely control its outcomes They all become daily opportunities to demonstrate faithful dependence in him. The words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes reveal that all of the complexities of life under the sun lead to a stunningly simple conclusion in light of everything else he has said. All of life's answers are ultimately found in him. That is, in God. One shepherd who actually is able to control the wind. What is fascinating about the phrase, shepherding the wind, is that it's used in multiple places throughout the book. Therefore, Shepherding imagery is embedded in multiple places throughout the book, which brings cohesion to the overall message and makes the preacher's final point all the more powerful. For us, life is often maddeningly frustrating because we can't fully grasp what God is doing. It's like trying to corral the wind like a shepherd corrals his sheep. 
but chapter 12. I read these words as we began. The words of the wise are like goads. In other words, like a shepherd's staff or stick that he uses to guide his sheep. You see the imagery that the preacher is using throughout his message. You're not left in chaos in the world because, end of the book, the words of the wise are like nails firmly fixed. Do you see where he's going with this? Despite all the chaos around you, which is like trying to corral the wind, yet there is one shepherd, a wise shepherd, who with his staff is able to guide and direct the sheep. And his words are like nails, firmly fixed, so you can count on them. Do you see the message of Ecclesiastes beginning to take shape? At the end of the day, or as he puts it, the end of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commandments because he has all the answers we can't figure out. And because he ultimately is what we all so desperately long for. Now, let's fully apply the rest of the Bible to Ecclesiastes very quickly. Everything in life points to one shepherd. And who might that be? Friends, recall his own words. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Paul said, in whom are found all the riches of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. This is to the answer. This is the answer to the question, where is Jesus in Ecclesiastes? Jesus is the final fulfillment of all of the longings expressed by the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Jesus is the redeemer of all of the preacher's disappointment and his disillusion. What makes this so, so, so mind-bending is when we remember the identity of the preacher, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, is the son of David, the first fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the very first in the line of the descendants of David that God promised would sit on the throne. In terms of wisdom, in terms of wealth, in terms of women, in terms of work, Solomon, the son of David, may have been the most hedonistically satiated man who ever lived. And yet, he's left longing, longing for something, Longing for someone more fulfilling. Yearning for someone eternally satisfying. According to 1 Kings, he was the wisest man who ever lived. Yet he found himself utterly exasperated trying to corral, that is to comprehend and to control the meaning and outcomes of life. He was left to declare Everything is hevel. A futile attempt to shepherd the wind. Though he didn't know it, Solomon found himself longing for David's greater son, 
the good shepherd, a man whose wisdom and fame would far surpass his own, a man who fills all in all, Ephesians 1.23, and a man from whose fullness we have all received grace upon grace, John 1.16. Ultimately, Solomon surveyed everything under the sun and concluded that he and everything else, everyone else, needed to look to one shepherd, the good shepherd, in whom every one of God's promises is yes and amen. As we transition to communion, consider consider that the good shepherd is the one who became to us wisdom from God. These are Paul's words. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30. How did Jesus, the good shepherd, become our redemption? John 10.11 reveals the reality that makes it possible. Here Jesus proclaims, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Which brings us to the sacrifice imaged before you this morning. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ bore all of the brokenness of this world onto himself. And in particular, this table represents the great exchange of our sin for the impeccable righteousness of Jesus Christ. Friends, the way that communion will work this morning is to, to, to come up the center aisles when you're ready, grab the elements, return to your seats on the outside rows, and then we'll, we'll take the elements together in just a few minutes. You need not be a member of River Oaks Community Church in order to participate in this, this table of grace. You do need to have, however, repented of your sin before God and placed your faith in Jesus Christ as the only reason that you are righteous in the Father's eyes. But if that is true for you, then you are welcome. You are welcome to come to this table of grace. Let me pray for us and you can come when you're ready. One final thing. We ask that if you're visiting with us this morning, that you be in right standing with your local church. And if, if you're not sure what that actually means or whether or not you are, just ask. I'll be up on one of the sides in the front. I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed at Jesus and in awe of your word. But ultimately... Your glory is demonstrated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so this morning, we remember his sacrifice on our behalf. And we rejoice in that sacrifice because it has made this fellowship meal with one another and with you possible. And so would you now lead us by your spirit? Convict us in areas where we need to be convicted. Expose areas where there may be disunity. And lead us to repentance and unity so that we might together rejoice in who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf. Lead us by your spirit now during this time, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' glorious name, amen.